Good morning, church. My name is Onyeka Ifelayo. I have been attending Reality for six years, and I serve as a CG leader and on the Village Welcome Team. Today's text is from 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Morning, church. Today, we do conclude our uh, series, Becoming Biblically Literate. Today, we'll feel a little um, more luxury today, so I'll uh, explain and talk about some Greek words, which I really don't do that often, and uh, kind of break down what's happening in this text. So um, my, my hope today is to teach on the Bible in formation, basically how the Bible changes us, and how it changes us, and how and what it does when it changes us, and who we become. So that's what we'll be doing today. Um, so let me pray before we get started. Lord, I... Uh, just confess that we need you today. I submit all of my, um, myself and capacities to you. I ask that you clear uh, my mind of certain distractions and allow me to be clear as I can be. Would you give um, us ears to hear what your spirit is saying today? I can speak to um, ears, but only you can change and speak to hearts and pray that would happen today. Um, to think of our church and the churches of, of Jesus Christ in this city. Um, when you get after your church and release us to become all that you called us to be. Um, the things that can happen in this city, in this world, are, are the possibilities are just endless, Lord. And we pray that you would do that in and through us by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, on May 14th, 1998, um, that was one of the most anticipated days in my uh, young life. I wasn't uh, born to see the moon landing on TV. I wasn't old enough to catch Michael Jackson's moonwalk in 1983, um, but I was of the age of being very aware of the culture on May 14th, 1998, when Seinfeld was there in the finale. And uh, everyone was talking about this. I could not wait to watch it. Now, the show about nothing that ran for nine years, nine seasons, was coming to an end. And I remember watching it, like the rest of America, like 72 million people or something like that watched it all over America. I remember watching the finale of Seinfeld thinking, I don't get it. Like, why in the world did it end this way? And the next day, I was reading the paper. There wasn't Twitter there then at all, or internet, really. Um, I read the paper, because we did the newspaper, that is. Um, and it was called, all over, kind of everywhere, it was called, like, the worst ending of a show ever. And it held that title until Lost had their finale, and then now that took over. Um, but that's a different story altogether. But even to this day, if you, like, Google, like, worst 
endings to a to like a sitcom or a show of all time, Seinfeld is up there ranked as one of the worst endings of a show ever. Now I'm not giving anything away here because there is literally no plot in Seinfeld, and there is no story arc in Seinfeld, which is kind of the point. The show ends with Jerry, Elaine, uh, George, and Kramer standing trial in Massachusetts for not acting when they witnessed a carjacking. They saw a carjacking, instead of acting and doing something, they made fun of the person whose car was being jacked. And they were just pointing, making fun of this person. And they violated what was called the Good Samaritan Law. And they were standing trial. And the show ends with all of the people that came across them over nine seasons and basically standing trial of like, they don't, they haven't changed, they're always this way, they're horrible people. And they're found guilty of not doing anything to help and they, they're sentenced to a year in jail. And the series ends with them sitting in jail. Here, I won't play the ending, but this is a, 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 a clip of, or the, a picture of the ending. They're sitting in jail talking about nothing of significance at all. And Jerry finally points out that George's button uh, is on his shirt is in the wrong place. Like He's like, your, your button's in the wrong place on your shirt. Your shirt's not made well because it's supposed to be a little higher. It's too low. And if you get the second button wrong, your whole shirt looks silly. And they're talking is like, really? What? Okay, well, haven't we had this conversation before? And the thing is, they had that conversation before in the opening scene of the very first episode. They were talking about George's button. And the idea is the characters never grew. The characters, this show ended the way it began. It was a show about nothing. Larry David, the co-creator of the show, said that a lot of people don't understand that Seinfeld is actually a dark show. It's dark in the sense that there was no growth, no character development at all in these characters. And that's dark. And what's even darker is that we were all too busy laughing, and it still holds up. That show is really funny. We're all too busy laughing that we don't know what's really going on, at least I didn't as an 18-year-old. And speaking of like being young in high school, one day, very soon, you will, if you haven't already, experience what is called the high school reunion. I don't know if you've experienced this yet. Happens in 10, 10-year high school reunion, 20-year high school reunion. If someone tries to call a 15-year high school reunion, do not go. That's, that's stupid. Just don't. 10? Uh, okay. 20? Okay. And then after that, maybe 50 and then 100, whatever. But you will go and you will witness a strange and sad phenomenon that some people don't change. You will run into people in your high school reunion that are doing the exact same things they were doing in high school. And over drinks, you might smile and say, oh my gosh, you haven't changed at all, but as you step back and realize what you just said, it's actually the saddest thing ever. Friends who were doing the exact same thing, like when I went to my 10-year high school reunion, there was people, my friends, that were doing the exact same thing, like leaving the party to hook up with the same people they were doing that with in high school. Like it was really, really sad. The last five weeks, we've been in a series on the Bible, and here's, here's been the goal. The goal is actually two goals. The first one's obvious, that you would read the Bible, that was like one of the big goals. That you, if you go to this church, would start to read the Bible regularly as a spiritual practice. Now, in order to do that, we had to deal with some roadblocks that kept people from reading the Bible, why they were afraid to approach the scriptures. And so we tried to deal with some of that baggage. But the other real hope of this series has been to help you 
break the habit of reading the scripture in ways that only reinforce the structure of your false self. That's been like the real goal, is to break the habit of you reading scripture in ways that only reinforce the structure of your false self and therefore never change. That you would read the Bible year after year and there would be no transformation, no growth, no change. That your spiritual life would map over Seinfeld almost perfectly. That, would, that is the, the danger that you have when you just read the Bible. When you just read it, just like, I just want to read it, and there's no, you're not opening yourself up to transformation. That is a grave, grave danger. And that's what I want to kind of talk about today. Jesus went around saying this frequently, uh, like, strange saying. He would say this phrase, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He would teach something and then say that or say that and then share a parable. Now, this is a very strange saying, unless there is a way that we can hear with our ears, but not really hear. Like something else happens when we hear. Like we don't hear, but we do something like self-protect. Or we listen in order to condemn. Like to use the words we hear in ways that we can judge or accuse or criticize and attack. But there is a way of hearing that Jesus is inviting us into that is more of an openness. More of a a willingness to encounter. To hear and be open and willing to encounter something as we hear with our ears. To encounter truth and beauty goodness to encounter God. So a hearing that assumes a certain kind of posture. Now we all know what it's like, I imagine that we all know what it's like to hear in a way that isn't hearing, that isn't perceiving, that isn't open. It's like if you've, like when you get into a really heated argument with a friend or a significant other, especially a significant other, because there's something about those arguments that are especially heated. um, And you're, you know you're right because you probably are, right? And you're mounting your defense. You're like, you're, you, you have your argument. It's like tight. It's buttoned down. You're trying to like show them that you are right. And the person that you're arguing with says something in the middle of the argument that's funny. <laughs> or says or does something cute. And it strikes you as funny or it strikes you as, as cute. And then you are, you are faced with this moment. You are confronted with the choice. Are you going to open yourself up to this humor? Are you going to open yourself up to this cuteness? Or are you going to shut it down and go, no, you will not laugh. You, will, you have an argument to make here. You have to face this and be strong. Like, We've all known these moments. Like, we're faced with this moment. Like, what do I do? I want to laugh, but I'm not going. I've done so many times where Ash will say something funny. I'm like, I'm not going to laugh. I'm right. And then I get more mad because I psych myself up because I don't want to, you know, go this other way. This is, this is the kind of thing that we're, my, my, my daughter Juniper right now is in this, like, phase where when I'm disciplining her, even when I get angry with her, She'll look at me in the middle of the argument. She'll just say something random. She'll say, she's, she said this a few times, um, Daddy, I'm going to need you to apologize to me. <laughs> it's like in the middle of me trying to discipline her. And most times I smile or I just laugh. I just start laughing. And I'm like, why do I need to apologize to you? She goes, I don't like your attitude. Or she'll say, 
you're making me feel sad or I don't like the way you're talking or something like that. And then I'm faced with this choice. Do I like double down? I'm like, no, you have to learn this. Or do I open myself up to this like, like different way of looking at this or this different grace that comes into this conversation? Now, what Jesus is asking for is a kind of hearing that is opened. A kind of hearing that is open to being surprised. That is open to being confronted with the new. That is ultimately open to encounter. Let they who have ears, let them hear. Are you open to encounter when you read the scriptures? Or do you just keep reading to reinforce your false self? Are you open to an encounter with God? That's the first question. And the next question is, are you open to being changed? Are you open to being changed when you read the Bible? And I ask this honestly, knowing that the sad reality of how we treat the Bible is illustrated by the true story of Thomas Jefferson, one of our nation's founding fathers. He has this really famous Bible. It's actually called the Jefferson Bible. And it's in a museum where he went through and he cut out all the parts of the Bible that he either didn't like or he thought were implausible or parts of Jesus' teaching that, that couldn't be true. And this is what he literally did. And what was left was a Bible that looked a lot like him. A man in the 1800s, all his power, privilege, it looked like that. Now you're like, I would never do that. But we do that, we do that all the time. If you're not open to reading and open to being changed by the scriptures, a lot of times we'll read with going, that's what's wrong with the Bible. And we're looking, we're reading with those ears instead of reading with ears that are open to being changed. Now, if you are open to it, if you're really open to encounter and change and transformation when you study and read the scriptures, if you're open, here's how the scriptures change us. We call this formation. Here's how it happens. It's right here in our text, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. That word is profitable, helpful, good for, beneficial. The scriptures are God-breathed and are useful for teaching, rebuking. We'll have to do some work with that word because you're like, wait, I don't like that word. Correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now we have to do some work on this because maybe this scripture is so familiar, with, for, familiar to us that we can't see it, or these words are so detached from our world today that we can't see it. So we have to do some work here. So what we see here in this passage is we see the scriptures are both inspired and they're useful. They're inspired and they're useful. Let's look at this for, for a bit. First of all, inspired. Now, this phrase, the, 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 all scripture is God-breathed or inspired, is a bit puzzling. Let's read a few different translations of this verse and show you a bit how it's puzzling and how translators try to deal with this verse. ESV says, all scripture is breathed out by God. New Living says, all scripture is inspired by God. ASV says, every scripture inspired of God. NIV says, all scripture is God breathed. And there's many other phrasings as well. Now, there's a great debate and polarity in the understanding of inspiration and where the emphasis lies in inspiration. More of the conservative-leaning 
folks and interpreters think of the Bible as the inspired word of God with all inspiration relating to its writing. So the Bible is inspired in the sense that this here is breathed out by God and that's what that verse means and that's all that it means. More progressive leaning folks will read this to mean that the inspiration of scripture is something that happens to the individual reader. When we read it, the Bible inspires us or in a better way of saying that God breathes into us the inspiration of scripture. Now, which is it? And the answer is yes. It's both. And you can't lean too far on one side or the other. If you lean too far on the, on the first side, you become like the Bible is an idol. This is where you get inerrancy. This is where you get people like, this is literally, actually, every single word right here in the NIV or whatever translation you have, every single thing is perfectly, perfectly, perfectly written just as God breathed it. And you get the Bible as an idol sort of thing. And with that, those folks, it's like, you know, Father, Son, Holy Bible, that sort of camp. But then if you lead too far the other way, well, it's like the Bible is just inspiration. And the bits that aren't inspiring, just take those bits out and just go to the bits that are inspiring. Now, you actually need both, you need both of these things. The inspiration of the writer and God's inspiration of the reader are two halves of a whole. You need them both. And to lose either half is to filter out of our hearing of the scripture a tremendous amount of living, piercing, transforming word of God. To leave it out. We need both. We need it to be, it's both inspired in its writing and that God breathed this thing into being through the writers and not just that, it breathes into us. John Wesley taught people how to read the Bible when he did. He emphasized a sincere prayer before reading the Bible because he said, quote, scripture can only be understood through the same spirit whereby it was given. Scripture can only be understood through the same spirit by, um, whereby it was given. That means the scripture that breathed this into being, that same spirit is the, is the spirit that, we, that breathes into us that we can understand it. It's the same spirit. So the inspiration of the scriptures, the God-breathedness of the Bible is a dynamic thing. And that it, God inspired its writings and there's also a dynamic of God's inspiration in our reading of the scripture. So the word of God that encountered the writers and led them to write also encounters us. And in that, we become part of the inspiration of the scriptures ourselves. We become part of the inspiration of the scriptures. Let me explain that, because that, that that's might be a really hard thing to understand. Maybe even more, or maybe even to accept. Well, let me explain this. The word here for, for God breathed or inspiration is the Greek word theopanustos. Theopanustos. It's made up of two words, literally God breathed. God, theo, and panustos or nustos is this word for breathe or breath. So inspired or God breathed is this, is, this, is this Greek word. Now here's the question. What else has God's breath in it? What else did God breathe into? And the answer is humanity. I know you don't want to answer it because you don't want to show off or whatever, but the answer is humanity. <laughs> Genesis chapter two. We are all, in a sense, the word of God as well. Let me explain that. As in something that God has both broke, has spoke forth, like he said, let us make man, 
and women in our image. Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So he speaks us forth, like he says, let there be light. It's God's word that speaks that forth. In the same way, he speaks us into existence. And not just that, it says that God breathed into us and we became living beings. God breathed. Same thing that God breathed into the scriptures. God breathed into them. Now, the idea here in 2 Timothy 3.16 is a kind of a play on words. All God-breathed scripture means that we, as God-breathed creatures, who read, meditate, respond, take in these God-breathed words, become more like the God who breathed both into existence. We'll see the reality of that and how that plays out later on when we get to the very end of this passage. The God who breathed this into existence is the same God that breathes into us through the scriptures so that we become like him who breathed us all into being. Does that make sense? Now the idea here is that, or put another way, is that when you meditate on the scriptures, when you read and respond to the scriptures correctly, the same breathing of God that brought the scripture into being that same breath of God that brought humanity into existence, that same inspiration of God, the wind or the spirit of God, is now breathing into you being as well, a new being in Christ. He's breathing into you life and being in this world as well. Robert Mulholland says this in his book, Shaped by the Word, which I can't recommend enough. It's such a good book. He says this, the spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit, now that word spirit is the word Numa, the same root word as Theopanustos, Numa, spirit. The spirit, Holy Spirit of God at work in our lives brings us into companionship with the text in such a way that the word of God begins to shape the word that God speaks us forth to be in the world. We are, in a sense, the word that God is speaking into the world. And the word of God, the scriptures, God uses and he speaks into us to shape, um, reform, form, realign to his word so that we can be his word in the world. And when this happens, when the scriptures become inspired in this dynamic dual mode, when it becomes the place where we are open to encounter the living, creative, and piercing word of God, then Paul tells us four things open up to us. Four realities open up to us through the Bible, through the scriptures. So here they are. The four formational realities of scripture are this. The the, the scriptures are for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Now all of this is so that the word that God is speaking into the world through us, us, uh, the word that, that we are, gets, gets like transformed and formed into how God wants us to live into the world. So this is how this works. Here's the four, four formational realities. Um, and this is what the Bible calls useful. Now some of these need unpacking because they're not super clear at first read. So the word teaching here. Now the, this word teaching is actually pretty straightforward. When we hear the word teaching, We typically think of do's and don'ts. We think of facts and information. If I was going to teach you something, I would teach you the facts about it, the information about it, the do's and don'ts around it. Now, that is true to an extent. When we read the Bible, when we're studying scripture, we need to know the do's and don'ts. We need to know the facts and information. 
But like with teaching anything to anyone, you hope that what happens is that that one person that you're teaching learns the do's and don'ts, learns the facts and information so that they can act out what they have learned. So they can live into what they have learned. For example, we're teaching our son Nowen, who's one years old, how to throw right now, how to throw. Which is really fun until he picks up a rock or a block and throws it at your head. Like it's really, it's really fun. Like last night we were playing, throwing a ball back and forth. He gets so excited and he's like, okay, I'm going to throw this wooden block at your face. And he tries to and I stop. Ah, no, no, now we don't throw that. We throw this and not that. I have to teach him. We throw these things and this is how we throw them, but we don't throw these things. And here's why. And here's how you hold the thing you're going to throw and here's when to let go of the object so it has, gets some, gets some projectile, gets some, gets some height. Now the hope is eventually he knows how to live in the world of throwing objects, right? Like when someone says to him when he's older, hey, throw me the keys. If he, if he says, well, my dad said on the third week of March, 2023, not to throw sharp objects, so I must decline throwing keys. <laughs> he would have failed to learn exactly how to live into this. Is that, do you understand that? So you take in the, 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 the facts and information, the do's and the don'ts, so you can live wisely. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy, to, live, to make you wise for salvation, so that we can live into this. So we can live into this teaching to live wisely into it. Now, also notice that the word teaching is singular. And when Paul and the other New Testament writers use teaching in the singular, it has to do with the good news of what God has done and is doing through Jesus. That's the teaching. Therefore, when we talk about the scriptures teaching us, some of that is doctrine, and some of that is theology and so forth, but the goal of that is that you learn and know how to live into the reality of new life in Christ. So you learn how to live into the reality of new life in Christ, and we'll return to that in a bit. The second word, rebuking. Now, this one might need some cultural work for us because we don't walk around saying I need to rebuke you right now. So don't show up in your CG saying that. Probably won't be a good thing. Probably be interpreted way wrong. But this, this, this word needs some work. Now I want to call your mind to the first teaching of this series and we unpacked in that series Hebrews 4, or that's teaching, Hebrews 4, 12. Where the writer of Hebrews says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates to even dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then it goes on to say, nothing is hidden and everything is uncovered. Now, what, the, what does it mean that the scriptures rebuke you? Taking into account Hebrews 4.12. It's, it's um, a better, more literal word would be reproof. It reproves you. The idea is that it exposes you, exposes parts of your life to show misalignment or incorrectness. So in like Hebrews 4.12, it, it goes right to the core of who you are and it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude. It goes right into that place and then it shows you, oh, this is where you're misaligned to the way of Jesus. This is where you're incorrect about this thing. This is like one of the goals of our daily reading. We call it bread. 
that the living word of God gets into the deep center of our being. And then it discerns the thoughts and the intentions and then it addresses us at points of our brokenness or incorrectness or misalignment. The hope of bread is that you, not that you just check a box. That I just, I read, my, I read my Bible today, did my quiet time today, done. That is not the goal. The goal is transformation. That God would encounter you and this thing would happen. There'd be some rebuke that happens of at certain times, not like every day. You're like, oh my gosh, turn it off, God. That's too much rebuke. But sometimes it shows up in forms like last week. We were reading, uh, I think it was Thursday, or it might have been Friday or Wednesday, one of the days. We were reading 1 Samuel 24, where David meets Saul in a cave, and he could have killed Saul, but he doesn't kill Saul, but he cuts off David's garment, and he goes in like, Saul, why are, you, why are you trying to kill me? I could have killed you, but I didn't. I'm not trying to kill you. I was just sitting with that scripture. And it's really random, like, just sitting with that. And I was trying to like, God, what do you want to say to me, speak to me today? And I was sitting with this story, the word of God, the spirit of God was searching me, the deepest part of me. I didn't even know this was happening. I'm just like sitting here, I'm like, and all of a sudden I have this, this, this thought, this question that pops into my head that I, I'm, I believe and really know it's from God. And it was this, the question was, are there people in your life that you don't want to succeed? Are there people in your life that you don't want to succeed in life. And I was like, wow, ooh, ooh, ooh. That one, that one's not going to my journal for the future because um, when I die, they're going to read this. No, I, I was like, <laughs> I had to sit with this one. And I was like, yeah, actually, there are people that I don't want to succeed. And I don't like that part of me. And this was the, ex- the opening and ex- exposing misalignment. See this misalignment right here? This is not good because the end of this turns into bitterness, resentment, and you're like cheering for their destruction. That's not good. So this, was, this is where the word gets right in there, shows me the gap, I confess it, I ask God to heal me, and then I journal some stuff. Now the next one is correcting, so I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with that example in a second, but again, the word correcting here is not the best translation we have. The word here means to bring something into alignment or something that was crooked to make it straight or to bring it into wholeness, restored into proper condition. So you can see why this follows rebuke. When the thing is exposed and open, like look, look at this misalignment, correction comes in like, okay, now let's correct this misalignment and line it up to the way of Jesus. So the word of God teaches us a whole new way of being uh, in the reality of Christ is teaching. And then it brings to light those things that are inconsistent with teaching. And then here, the word allows for alignment and wholeness and restoration. This is what it means by correction. It gives us the opportunity to obey, to partner with God through obedience, to, to partner with God for obedience to be the channel in which God brings in us into formation, into his likeness. And so for me, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I could, I can just say no. I could say no. There's no one I want to fail in my life or not succeed in my life. No, that'd be lying and I wouldn't open myself up. I could just say, yeah, there is, but you know, we all want that. Everybody I know wants the same thing. They don't want this person to succeed. Or I could open myself up and say, yes, there is. Here they are. And how do I bring myself into correction, into alignment? This is what correction means. And then, and this usually happens through confession, and most importantly it happens, and this is the hard part, this happens with an agreement 
that God's way of being is better for my soul and my life and for the world. Because sometimes we read something, we're like, well, I just don't agree that God's way is better. And this, so therefore we're not, we're not transformed because we're like, I think I should cut this part of the Bible out because it doesn't really, I don't really like it. But when we come to the uh, scripture that really confronts us, it shows us we have to be open to correction through the scripture. And then lastly, training. Now this word um, uh, is, um, is just a loaded word in Greek. A loaded word in Greek. Uh, Padia is the word in Greek. It's where we get the word uh, pedagogy. And it's a really important, like loaded word in, word in the Greco-Roman world. Every student went through training in the Greco-Roman world. This is, this, what this meant was that a young person was nurtured and then educated and trained and disciplined and guided and instructed in all forms, mind, body, and spirit. A young person would go to a gymnasium where they were trained in their mind and their body and their spirit. And the idea was that they would mature into a participating member of the polis, that is the city, which was the entire social, economic, political, religious, and cultural matrix that gave meaning and purpose and value for human existence. So the training was so important. Do you want to live a life of meaning and purpose and value and in human existence? Well, you need training in order to enter into the polis, into the city. So they would go into deep training where they would train their bodies, where they would train their mind, and they, they would train their spirit. Now, this is such an important world, word in the Greco-Roman world and it was a culturally loaded word, so much so that Paul and the New Testament writers took over this term to speak of the work of God and the life of God's people. The work of God is a training. We think it's a zap. We think God zaps us during worship. We think God zaps us during, um, during prayer time. But the word here is actually what happens is you go through this very lengthy training with, the, with God in his word. Where your mind, your, your, your actual body, your, your soul, your spirit, your future, your longings, your desires, your wants, your needs, all of that gets trained so that you can become uh, a, participa- a participate um, and participate in the kingdom of God or the polis of God, the city of God. This is the idea, which is why what comes next is verse 17. It says, so that, so all this stuff happens, right? So there's teaching and rebuke and correcting and training. That all happens through the scriptures. Now, what's that for? Well, it's so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, this is a bit vague. This is a bit like, we can't grab onto this. What is that, thoroughly equipped? What does that, what does that mean? The word thoroughly equipped, again, it's not, a, it's not a great translation of what's happening here in Greek. This word is literally complete, arios in Greek. Complete. It means something that is perfectly suited to its nature. Something that is perfectly suited to its nature. Last Monday night, David Bennett and Jess and my wife Ashley and I were having dinner back in my office before the lecture. 
And David ordered a, a Caesar salad. And he was eating the Caesar salad, and he, he said, um, this Caesar salad's okay, but the Caesar salad that I had last time I was here at Tartine Manufactory, that was the perfect Caesar salad. It had the perfect amount of anchovies, cheese, the romaine lettuce was, was torn and not cut because you're not supposed to cut romaine lettuce. It was torn, and the Caesar, it, was, it was exactly what a Caesar salad was supposed to be. Ardios. Perfectly suited to its nature. That's, now, was the other salad good? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It was whatever. Is that a bowl? It was, it was fine. But the one that he had last time, he said, no, that one was perfectly, the Caesar salad possessed the essence of a Caesar salad. It was what a Caesar salad is supposed to be. It was everything a Caesar salad ought to be. Now, this is the term that Paul uses for the goal of being shaped by the word of God that we would be perfectly suited to our nature. In our shaping, in in the teaching, the reproof, the correcting and training, we are being formed into the likeness of Christ, which is to be perfectly suited to our nature, which is to be like God, or to image God. Remember Genesis 2, that we're image bearers of God? And then that got distorted. And then Jesus comes, perfect human, perfectly expressing what it's like to be an image bearer of God, to reflect God, and then dies for us, raises again, gives us spirit. Now you go and do that into the world. And now we're right back on the kingdom project. Now we're right back into like, now through the scriptures, through immersing myself in a training that God does, I want to be perfectly suited to my nature. So I do that where I work, and where I live, and where I vacation. That's the idea. To be like him in this world. But it goes on. Not just that, not just thoroughly equipped or perfectly suited to your nature. That happens for every good work. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is that? What's every good work? Now this is purposefully vague. This is vague. You're like... What, what, is, what are the good works I'm supposed to do? See, the goal of reading and studying and meditating and opening your life up to the scripture is not so that you can have all the right behaviors and follow all the right rules. First of all, that's boring. Second of all, that's very uninspiring and uncreative. Rather, reading the Bible is an invitation to our imagination. The idea is allowing the word of God to shape us and form us into new ways of seeing and being in the world that we partner with God to creatively reimagine the world in ways that line up with God's story. So that we'd be so immersed in this story that it becomes the filter, the worldview in which we see everything, and then we live this thing out in the real world, in real life. We read scriptures and we make it a lifelong pursuit to meditate on them so that we're formed by them, shaped by them, and then transform so that we can continue the story of God, the good works. Now, uh, there's a good illustration of this if this still feels a bit abstract to you, and I understand that it is abstract. And part of it's supposed to be, because you're supposed to have creativity and imagination. But a really good illustration of this, um, N.T. Wright talks about this when he talks about the Bible's authority. So this is a double-edged illustration. It illustrates why God's word is authoritative, 
but it also illustrates what do we do now? How do we live into good works? How are we so shaped by scripture that we then do good works or we live into the story? N.T. Wright tells this illustration, goes like this. Imagine we have recovered a lost Shakespeare five-act play. And we have act one, two, three, and five, but we don't have act four. We know how the story starts, how it builds, how it culminates, and how it resolves, but we don't have that very important act four to show us the consequences of how act three plays out how the tension of it gets heightened by the hopes and the fears caused by act three. What do we do with that? Let's say that we want to stage this play. How do we stage this play that we don't have the fourth act for? And he says you could, one option is you can write act four. You can just write it. But that might feel a little inappropriate since Shakespeare himself didn't write it. It would commit Shakespeare to things he never said or wrote. What might be a better option is to give the key parts to highly trained, sensitive, and experienced Shakespearean actors who would immerse themselves in the first three acts and the fifth act, immerse themselves in the language and the culture of Shakespeare and his time, and then they would be asked to work out the fourth act themselves. Now, is is the illustration landing at all? It should be landing. (laughs) If not, let me explain a little further. Consider what might happen if we actually did this. What happened if this play, the Shakespearean play, plays out, the first three acts and the final act would undoubtedly be the authority for how the actors are to live in the play. Do you see now how the scripture is authoritative? It's the authority, it's the canon. You can't leave the canon. You stay in the canon. You, if you're acting this fourth act out, you have, to, you have to stay consistent with act one, two, three, and how it's going to end in act five. And what would be required of these actors is to enter into the story as it stood and then try to move the story on to its written conclusion. So that it would require imagination, innovation, and consistency. Now, when Ed Wright says, he says, I like to suggest that this is what we have with the story of God. We know where the story starts and how it starts. We know how the story builds Israel. We learn who God is and what God is trying to do in the world through Israel. We know how it culminates in Christ, the suffering servant, and then resurrection. We know the first bit about the church, called and empowered by the Spirit to be the people of God for the world. And then we know how it resolves in Revelation, but we're missing this very large bit from the early church to the new creation. We know how the church starts, but we're missing the consequences of how the church, empowered by the crucified and risen Jesus, plays out in San Francisco in 2023. And what we are tasked to do is to continue in the story well. To take up our part in the story, to move it along from what we inherited and do the best we can to move it forward toward its resolution. And now we're full circle to where we started. We are God's word spoken in the world. We are to be, this is exactly what Jesus left us here to do, we are to be the image of God in the world. The word of God through action spoken into the world. We are to to learn our part, to learn the first three acts, to immerse ourselves in them and to know where it ends and to immerse ourselves in it, to know the do's and the don'ts and the facts and the information so that we imbibe it, trained in it, so that we can live out of the story into the world. And this can only happen from the inside out. 
This could only happen by encountering God. This could only happen by opening up to him through the scriptures, by allowing him to change us, to like, no, I won't get into method acting because that might be too much, but to literally, to, to immerse ourselves fully into it so that we can continue in this story so that we can live out the story. And like, I, like we said at the very beginning, like I said at the very beginning, I think what our city needs, what this world needs now more than ever are, are followers of Jesus who are committed to this, committed to living out the story of God in our, in our workplaces, doing good in the world, to, genuine good in the world, good in the world, to hold on to truth in the world, to bring and to see beauty in the world. This is what we are here to do, to immerse ourselves in this, to ask the spirit of God to change us and transform us so that we could do good works in this world in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me as we pray? Would you open your hands to God in a posture of just um, receiving and openness, like taking your body and like I'm open? Lord, here we are, and um, we really want to be people, and I, as a pastor of this church, really want this for people, to people that are, are, are shaped by you and formed by you and then used in this world for good that we would be suited to our nature as new creatures in Christ, prepared, created for good works, to live out in San Francisco and beyond God. And we ask for your anointing and your help. We need you to do this. We open ourselves, we can do what we can. We can open ourselves to you, but Lord, would you encounter us? Would you come and show yourself to us? Would you shape us and mold us by your word? May we be open to being, to being taught, to being rebuked and reproofed. Please, God, make us open to that, to be corrected and be trained. That we can just be, we be your people in the world. Do that here in our community groups. Do that here as we commit ourselves to you on a Sunday and I pray for those that feel discouraged because they're not where they want to be. This takes a long time. This takes a long time. Mature us, God. Grow us up. In Jesus' name, amen.